0: Welcome to Season 5 of Writers' Festival Radio, broadcasting from the unceded and unsurrendered territory of the Anishinaabe Algonquin Nation. My name is Sean Wilson. I'm the Artistic Director of the Ottawa International Writers' Festival, Canada's festival of ideas since 1997. We're celebrating 25 years of community connection, and I want to give special thanks to our amazing volunteers who make it all possible, and to thank you for supporting the festival, authors, booksellers, and each other. Today on the podcast, we present the third and final of our special episodes presented in collaboration with Carleton University's Beyond Resettlement Conference. Here's Professor Zulkifar Hirji in conversation with Tina Altaid. Born in Uganda, Tina immigrated with her family to Canada from England and has been a teacher for 30 years. Her debut novel, Orange for the Sunsets, the middle grade book, is a junior library guild selection and winner of the CCBC Jeffrey Bilson Award for historical fiction for young readers.
1: This past September 2022 marked the 50th anniversary of the 1972 expulsion from Uganda of more than 50,000 Ugandan Asians by the military dictator Idi Amin. These people, men, women, children, families, the old, the young, the informed and the able, many of whom had known no other home than Africa, some for generations, were given 90 days to leave Uganda or face severe consequences. This year also marks the anniversary of the full commencement of Idi Amin's almost decade long reign of terror, during which more than 500,000 Ugandan Africans were murdered. Our series of conversations focuses on authors who have written fictional novels related to the expulsion of the Ugandan Asians. The series is part of the conference Beyond Resettlement exploring the history of the Ugandan Asian community in exile to be held at Carleton University in November, 2022. The conversation is also featured as part of the Ottawa International Writers Festival podcast series. I am Zulfikar Hirji, and joining me today is the writer, Tina Athaid. Tina was born in the city of Entebbe in Uganda, and after leaving Uganda in 1972, she immigrated with her family to Canada from England. She has been a teacher for 30 years, Believing that books can present different experiences to children in an organic, natural way, she started publishing early literacy readers for the educational market before her debut book, Orange for the Sunsets, published in 2019 by HarperCollins Tegan. Teagan. The book, a story about the childhood friendship between a Ugandan Asian girl and an African boy in the months leading up to the expulsion, is a junior library guild selection and winner of the CCBC Jeffrey Bilson Award for historical fiction for young readers. In 2021, she published her debut picture book, Mina's Mindful Moment, published by Page Street Press. She's currently working on a middle grade book in verse about an Indian family expelled from Uganda and sent to a resettlement camp in England to be published by Charles Bridge in 2025. Welcome, Tina, and thank you for joining me today.
2: Thank you so much. It's an absolute pleasure to be here.
1: Tina, you were born in Uganda, in Entebbe. Uh, What are some of your memories of your life there?
2: So I was very young when we left. So it's the images, you know, when you're very young, it's just snapshots that you have these captured moments, as well as emotional connections. So it's that, you know, small memories of mom coming home from the hospital, where she worked as a nurse and I've integrated her world in the book as well. And also memories just of the Entebbe Institute, the Goan Institute club that was behind our house, just memories of music when I was in the garden or the botanical garden with dad being, just walked through there. And that memory of that parent-child relationship that calmness, that beauty. Those are the types of memories I have, those very young childhood memories, but very much a sense of content.
1: And have you been back to Uganda since you left in 1972?
2: No, we have not. I did, as part of the research, when the book sort of shifted, I did go to Kenya. And at that time, I had an opportunity to interview... A couple of people that had experiences within Uganda from an African-Ugandan perspective, but I've not been back. But cousins of mine have been back recently.
1: And what did they tell you about their experience? Did they share some of their thoughts with you about that?
2: They did. They did, absolutely. So one of them actually lives in Ontario. He went back and he has fallen in love with it all over again and is has found that the city is starting to as well completely has rebuilt itself. And he sees there's more of a balance with the, the power and those sorts of things being in the hands of the African people. And so it is different from then what it was like when we were there all those years before.
1: Yeah, I grew up in Uganda as well, and I was seven when I left. And I do understand this idea of snapshots of memories and the idea that you, know, you don't fully have a picture of your experiences there as a child, but I have been back several times. And um, I too concur that it's a it's a very different landscape and, and, and society than when I remember it, even with those snapshots. Uh, Tell me a little bit about the book. Orange for the Sunsets is this fictional story of two young friends, and it takes place in the midst of some quite turbulent historical events in the months preceding Idi Amin's order that Asians be expelled from Uganda. What kind of research did you do, and how long did you spend researching before you began the book?
2: So it's interesting. The history of that book is very interesting in itself because it started out as a picture book, And then an editor from one publishing house, Lian Lowe, said, there's so much rich material here, put it into a middle grade book or novel. And it morphed through several versions until it ended up where it was just Asha's point of view. And so when it was just Asha's point of view... It was interesting because a lot of those experiences that are written through the book and her experiences and the crafting of her character in itself were from different people that we'd met, friends, families, listening to their experiences. And I had been to a couple of Uganda reunions at that point. And what struck me then, even as a child, younger, was this Amazing camaraderie and bond between these people that hadn't seen one another for years—that transcended countries, times, all of that—and I thought, what an amazing bond! And that bond grew from their relationships in Uganda, and no matter what happened, it didn't break. So, in talking to all of those people, that those, those experiences are what shaped all of these different Asian Indian characters. Then I did some research for Yusufu and I started to shape him. But the big change occurred when an editor said, did you ever think, Tina, of writing the book from alternating perspectives? Because you have these two friends that have such strong presence on the pages in the book. What about their different perspectives? And so I had to throw out like half the book to make room for Yusefu's life. (laughs) And that's when I did a lot more research because Asha's experiences were authentic. They were own voices in that. They were the voices of the Asian community. So they were authentic and real on the pages. And I needed to make sure that Yusefu's voice and his experiences were given the same credibility. Otherwise, the his voice would not and his truths would not have come through the book. And so that's when the research happened in Kenya. And also I did a lot of um online types of research with different people so I could capture what their, their feelings were.
1: And how long did you spend um doing this research before yeah. you sort of found the right balance between the main characters, Asha and Yusefu. Yeah. It was
2: another, I would say another three years after I had written the main book, with just it being about Asha. And And the interesting thing about this book, is also looking at society at that time and for me within the United States. And so when the book was first written, the feedback that I received is, oh, this is an interesting topic. We don't know much about this. We've never heard about this time or this event in history, which just floored me. But anyway, so there wasn't as much interest in the book. So it actually took me from the beginning to the end. About 15 years. And you have to think also when the book finally sold in 2017, there was a wave occurring in the United States and a growing awareness of the need for more diverse literature. And so now you had editors that were looking for more of a global story, as well as authentic stories to characters in different countries. So suddenly there was more of an appeal for the book. So it was interesting. It was rejected like over 35 times. I have a big stack of my rejection letters because back then it was an email. So I actually have the tactile things to look.
1: Well, I mean, I'm so glad you persevered uh, through this process because otherwise we wouldn't have this amazing story about these childhood friendships across divides Mm -hmm. of, ethnicity, or race, or religion, class, states of poverty and privilege. I guess a key theme in the book is this idea of friendship across these different uh, sort of divides. Talk to me about friendship. Why, you could have written a book about any set of topics, um, uh, but why did friendship sort of emerge as a kind of a key theme?
2: So it's central to children. So I teach and I work in the K-8, K-12 institutes. So when you look at that age group, a core need for all of them is friendships. And that is at the base. So when I was developing the themes in the book, you know, there was family, there was, you know, friendship, family, love, loyalty, betrayal, all of those themes, But when I was looking at what would resonate in the heart of a child, in the heart of a child, it is your friendship with somebody. And you hold on to that. It's that. And with friendship, you get that thread of what we feel as belonging. So when you have a friend, you now have a sense that you belong. And I wanted to show how... You start with a simplistic version of a friendship between two people. And this comes to play right in the beginning, in the opening chapters of now that as they're getting older, complications start to come in that are cultural and you know societal, the, the structures of society that are set up that don't necessarily come into play in the eyes of a young child. But as they grow older, it comes into play and with that privilege and then conflict. And so I felt to weave in those threads, you looked at the friendship first. And that's that's really where it stemmed for me. And I thought kids could relate to this idea of these two friends and what will happen to that friendship.
1: Yeah, I think, I think that's a really important um, aspect of how I looked at the book. But I also looked at the kind of subtext, which I felt, and you've kind of described it here, there's almost a sense as a child grows older, there's a sense or some kind of loss of innocence. Um, things that you maybe didn't fully comprehend or didn't even observe, you became become more keenly aware of. Um, difference becomes palpable and tangible and it has kind of material impacts on you uh, emotionally, psychologically, spiritually, and so on. And I think that this kind of, I was thinking about this when I was reading the book as a sense of, there's an incredible loss of innocence, but I didn't only take it as a loss of innocence in childhood, but also in a sense, I was thinking about this and you can tell me what you think. But in terms of the experience of this horrific event set of events, one almost feels that there's a societal loss of innocence um, that comes into play, um, testing um, a society in many different ways, testing the people who live in that society, um, breaking the possibility of a world that they had built um, in which there was a great deal of inequality and privilege and multiple states of poverty and, and wealth, et cetera. I I'm just wondering from your perspective, what do you think about this idea of loss of innocence both at a kind of a level of the two main characters um Asha and Yosefu and but also in terms of what was happening in Uganda at the time of the expulsion?
2: No, that's an excellent question and it it does it bears an exploring further. you know, when I wrote the book, it was for children, number one. But it was not just for them. It was also for, you know, the families that had left and adults who weren't aware of this time period. And that is also why with the children in the story, you have the adults also. You have, you know, Yosefu's mother who works for Asha's parents. You also have the teacher and they have storylines embedded in there. And I did that purposely because I wanted to show that this didn't just affect the children, like you said, it affected the adults too. You saw the relationship shift between Asha's mother and Yosefu's mother who had worked for that family for years. And in that shifting, you started to see exactly what you were saying, where society now started to fracture even more than what had been there. And maybe what had been there was sort of there. It was known. Nobody did necessarily anything about it. It was just sort of accepted. This is the way it was. But now with this announcement, it brought it up to light, it fractured that society even more, because, you know, one now saw opportunity, and then the other, their life was devastated, it was just ripped out from underneath them. And how do you find a balance? I have this conversation with students a lot. And we talk about the evils behind a a political situation. And were there evils here? Was at the root of this something that would help a group of people that this country was their country, but this other group believed that this country was theirs too. Like for you and I, we were born there. And you know, when you were born in a country that is your country. And so it, we, I have very interesting conversations about exactly that, that it's not as easy to say this was black and white, it shouldn't have happened, it was atrocious and this. Yes, there were aspects of that greatly, but then you have to dig further and see the background of what set this up. And that's where I wanted the adults to have space in this novel as well as the children so that I could have conversations at different age levels and it would open up dialogue and necessary conversations from children through adults was my hope.
1: Still yeah. is, yeah. No, I think that that's that's really really helpful. I think for audiences to think about, you know, that these are not easily resolved uh, questions that in which there are sort of black and white answers. Um, you know, history, memory, the questions of belonging, all kind of play there part in trying to craft us as individuals, as human beings. For me, one of the most compelling characters was Okello. Right. Um, I I just weeped when I sort of sort of saw what was happening to him and how he was, in a sense, almost forced to make choices that perhaps in a different different circumstance he would never have made. You know, and I just wanted you to sort of talk with me about Okello. What kind of went through your mind when you're crafting his his his, his personality? Yeah, his character. I mean, I I was it was really compelling. Yeah,
2: he was hard. He was my heartbreak because in order for this story to work, I as a writer had to hurt him. And I don't know, you know, for writers, our characters, we love them. <laughs> we just love them and you want like anything you want the best for them and so when I first wrote it oh my gosh he was fine Thing worked out beautifully for him but you know that wasn't the truth it wasn't it didn't accurately represent what could have happened to somebody like him and so I had to take a step back and distance my heart from him and let the story take its course and let him make those choices, which was very hard. And I remember my editor saying, okay, Tina, you're still protecting him. You've got to let go. I'm like, what? I let go enough, please. And it's heartbreaking. I have some of the best conversations with students about him in particular. And it usually stems from every time when I visit a class, I'll ask them, you know, who's your favorite character? Is it Asha? Is it Yusefu? Is it Akello? And always I will have a few that raise their hand for Akello, And those always interest me. And the rest of the class always sort of gasps. It's like, what? So then we delve into why. Why do we like him? What is it about him? And it's exactly what you said your heart breaks for him because he is that true victim of circumstance. Yes, he makes choices, but are those choices out of his own desperation? And he has no other choice.
0: You're listening to Writers Festival Radio. As always, I want to thank you for listening and for supporting authors and booksellers through these difficult times. Our official bookseller is Perfect Books on Elgin Street. And wherever you are right now, there's an independent bookseller nearby who would be more than happy to sell you some great books. If you enjoy the podcast or any of our virtual programming, please consider making a charitable donation. We can't do this without your support. And now, back to the conversation.
1: The book is about children making and being forced to make choices in circumstances that are not of their own making. And uh, without giving too much away, I mean, Akello seems to have this backstory to his family and his family life mm-hmm. and his father and so on. But I think that the question for me, and I was so moved by the book because I was a child when I left uh, Uganda. And um, and it just seemed to me that how would a child experience this traumatic shift in their geography, their space, their culture. Also, the loss of friendship for uh, Yusefu, potential loss of uh, of friendship. Um, I, I just wondered, you know, about how the children in the schools that you've gone to speak to, or the wonderful reading guides you've produced that are being used by teachers and so on, how are children receiving this book? And Does it resonate with them? It has been very positive. It has been amazing. One, they do not...
2: This is a new historical and political event that they are not familiar with. And what draws them in is the tension. And what else draws them in is the, the friendship and the bonds between everybody. And so it has been very interesting to visit classrooms. I've had the best conversations with them and I have visited classrooms all over the world and it has been very well received.
1: And is there a difference if you can say between children from immigrant backgrounds receiving it and children who in a sense have not had this experience? Have you figured out or discerned any sort of the so. yes. difference between the reception of this story or the characters or the events?
2: So, yes, um, definitely when I have visited classrooms in Canada, you know, in Ontario, much more of a diverse community as well as in um, in British Columbia, there were a couple of classrooms that I went to in Edmonton that had very diverse populations in the classrooms. Predominantly in England, I have the widest group of diversity. The most amazing thing for me, I have to tell you, has been when I have visited classrooms in Canada, because that Canada took in a large population of immigrants from Uganda, as well as in England. And it is kids coming up and saying, I took this story home and and you know my my grandparents that's what happened to them and now I'm reading about what happened to them and that's exactly what I wanted the light shines in their eyes their faces just <laughs> glow because they are in there they are in the pages you know they read so many books where other people are in the pages of those books and now I have given that gift of them being able to see a little bit of themselves in the pages. And what that does to a child at a very young age is it reinforces for them that they matter, their world matters, their culture matters, that aspect of them matters.
1: Yeah, I, I'm I'm very convinced by that, you know, sort of difference of reception. Um, as I mentioned, I myself didn't have opportunities through novels or fiction, um, to read about my own history, even in history books, when we moved to Canada in 72. I'm assuming you didn't either. Nobody um,
2: was eating dosas and samosas anywhere.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I mean, there was nobody eating the kinds of food we were eating at home and so on and so forth. But also no way to kind of uh, explain or to provide a context that people would be able to appreciate sort of what our parents were going through, grandparents, neighbors in Uganda, friends, family, and ourselves. And I remember it was always such a struggle to explain, first of all, where was this place on the map? And um, and what were these funny names, Entebbe, Kampala, yeah. Jinja, Toro, etc. You know, they just were not familiar to uh, sort of white, Middle-class folks in sort of a suburban city, suburban place in Canada, and um, and it always took so much time to explain that people would just kind of wander off because it was just too boring, and it was just easier for me to say, oh, I rode elephants and you know, mm-hmm. you know, ate you know, curry, and that was fine because the stereotype worked and nobody had to really work very hard at it. But it was doing us such a massive disfavor right. because it, it it positioned you know us as in these um, sort of uh, stereotypical ways, which, you know, our children then also perhaps maybe have been experiencing. I'm very curious to understand then, um, what can a novel do that a historical account can't do? Or do they both have a different purpose? I mean, why did you choose to write a novel and not you know, write your own biography or your history or that of your parents.
2: The reason that the novel worked is it, it humanized the events and it took them away from just being factual. The minute you connected this political event to people, which drew in heart. And really, if you look at a book like this, at the core of it is heart. It is So when children are reading it or adults, like you said, it broke your heart to read a Kelo story. And that is what the novel does differently than a nonfiction or a biographical account. Because you've created these characters, it gives you an opportunity to expand and imagine on them. But what it does is the reader connects with them, which is always the hope of a writer, but the reader connects more with all of these aspects And so it's not just then the political event. You start to understand, the kids and the readers start to understand the political event better. So if you, which we know, we have heard on this day, Idi Amin made this announcement, the Ugandan Asians were given 90 days to leave. It was horrible. It was atrocious. What occurred in the country afterwards for them as immigrants. When you listen to it that way, Versus reading what happened to these different characters, suddenly it's humanized. And so you get a sense of emotional connection to what these people experienced. And the minute you do that, your reader will find something in there that they can relate to that connects them with the character. And once you have that connection, they will feel more which is critical to understanding immigrant experiences, refugee experiences, is unlocking that box that can that allows you to feel more for what they went through.
1: Yeah, I I, I, I see that. And I can see how you've provided opportunities for many of us who are now adults and were children when we left to kind of. Rethink, you know, our own kind of, or recall, or remember, or sort of find some, some peace of mind in in your characters. And I was just thinking about you. Um, What was your process when you sort of finished the book and you sort of sat down and read it for yourself? Obviously, you've been through your own journey. Maybe you, you could tell us a little bit about that process because it certainly, as a reader of it. I went through a whole journey of my own. But what about you as the, as the writer? Yeah.
2: As the writer, it was one that, you know, the worry of how it would be received within the communities that I grew up. Because what was interesting about this book is when it was just written from Ash's point of view, it presented that Asian Indian perspective of all of the people that left. The minute I brought Yusefu, um, Akilo, Isai, his parents in, it gave it fair playing ground and so it forced people asian indian people you know to step outside those gut wrenching experiences those traumatic experiences that they went through at that time and forced them to look at a different perspective from the african perspective and that was a concern for me of how that would be accepted I was thrilled to see how well it was received. And I think the reason for that is enough time had passed for hurts to heal within the Asian Indian community, hurts to heal even in the African community, where when this book came out, there was now an ability to empathize with the opposite. And so I have to say, for me, that was my biggest worry. By telling it from two points of view, would there be some that said, well, that's not true, what we went through was worse, or what we went through was worse? That was my biggest fear, I have to say.
1: Yeah I, yeah, I think that's that's really interesting, because in a sense, when you do read a point of view that is not your own, and from a perspective and context that is not your own, you're forced to look at your own analysis of what went on. And I think that that is what the novel certainly forces you to do is all of a sudden you're thinking, I never imagined that this is what, you know, a young Ugandan African boy would be going through at home with his friends, the kinds of pressures would brought to bear on his life for the decisions and Choices that were not of his own making, and I think that that the book really does does do that. And I can imagine, for me as an adult reading it, um, yeah, it, it sort of I, I I heard echoes of my own family and and friends, you know, saying things like, you know, we didn't do anything that caused this. We were yeah. the victims of this experience. And, and having to reconcile the fact that there are long histories and complex histories there which need to be addressed. And, um, and some of my Ugandan African um, colleagues and friends who also have not had the opportunity to sort of process what happened to them or their families. I mean, 500,000, at least if not more, according to certain agencies, okay. Af- Ugandan Africans were murdered under Idi Amin, and in brutal, brutal circumstances. Mm-hmm. How do you think that your book, or even just talking about these issues, contributes to our a deeper understanding, empathy for those individuals who went through those that that sort of t- almost decade long brutal regime? Because obviously, your book doesn't, att- you know, go in that direction. It's sort of it it, it it concludes at a certain point in, in in this in this historical moment, but one gets the sense from certain characters in the book that this is going to be their life, this is going to be their life experience. Um will they survive? I'm just curious. Did you come across anybody in your in your research or people that you spoke to that kind of addressed that aftermath on Ugandan soil? It did.
2: I did. I had I had spoken to somebody who had a family member like killed and I'd spoken to somebody else who had said, you know, seeing the bodies floating in the river and there is that one section. I, you know, I bring some of that into the book and I had to think long and hard about the age group that I was, that was reading the book and how much of that sort of violence I wanted to bring in and As an educator, I firmly believe in exposing things to children and giving them the space to have the critical conversations to understand it. If we sugarcoat it, it's not the truth. So I had to write some scenes very carefully, but I needed to also realistically show that there was violence behind what was happening in that country. And so in speaking some to the Ugandan Asians themselves, After this occurred and what happened, it was very difficult for them. You know, the promises of what they believed would happen didn't. The economy, which we know, went through a massive collapse. It was very, very difficult for them for the longest time. And it took a while, you know, to get Idi Amin out. The regime then started. They went through turmoil before it started to emerge again to get where probably what you've seen today. But I have not, I don't think I would be the best person to write that because those are not, like I said, my natural experiences, but I wanted to at least allude to it in the book so that there was something in there that it would raise questions. Because as you know, the book doesn't end neatly tied up. And I didn't end it like that purposely because the reality is in a situation like that, nobody's life is neatly tied up at the end. There's no happily ever after. It's a rebuilding and healing process for everyone involved.
1: Yeah, I think I think that's that's beautifully put. I think that that really helps um, me to kind of see that there are, so many loose ends and there isn't this kind of neat kind of conclusion. But also for the Asian Ugandans who left, um, there are no easy sort of answers or conclusions. I remember in um, 1994, I believe, um, we did a kind of an event where we invited uh, various communities in Canada to talk about their experience of the expulsion And when I was doing the research for that, we put together a small exhibition of, you know, what people had brought with them. Mm -hmm. And what was shocking to me was um, families who, parents who had never shared their stories with their children because they didn't want them to be exposed to the violence The trauma that they had themselves experienced. And some of them, I remember, had, you know, even put away their kind of UN refugee passes and their suitcases in locked cupboards or up in in, in basements or in attics. And um, when we were doing the research for that, they brought them down for the first time. And their kids were so shocked. They said, we've never even seen these things. Our parents always sort of said, there's nothing we want to talk about. We just have to sort of, you know, make Canada you know where we now live and it's our home and we don't want to think about the past. Let's forget about it. You know, we're here to kind of build a new life. And I just wanted to know that obviously by writing this story, you're raising the past, um, which is almost the opposite of what many of our parents chose to do when they came to Canada or the US or the UK or Australia or wherever they ended up India and wanted to sort of put the past behind them um, because it was too traumatic to deal with. What would you say to some of those people who sort of say, well, why did you write this? Because now we have to deal with it. I mean, to put it in blunt terms.
2: I know. I think so. To answer your question, it actually is twofold for me. When I look at the immigrant experience for people in the early 70s, all right, And then you compare that to even in the mid 80s to 90s and the parenting that occurs. It is very, very different, very different. And I see that here in the United States with different Asian, South Asian communities. And what I am seeing is. When our families and people immigrated in the early 70s, like in England, there was an anti-immigration movement here. In Canada, there it was it was more welcoming, most definitely. But I too know that where I grew up, I think I was the only, the only brown person in the high school at all. <laughs> Except well, I was in the elementary, only my brother and I, you know what I mean? It absolutely
1: it, it, I was it know. was the same with me. Yeah, I yes. I, I totally get it. Yeah. And
2: yeah. so when you think of that through the lens of that person. It goes all the way back to that first question you asked me about friendship. You want a sense of belonging. The imme- immediately when you think of what is perceived as otherness, otherness separates you from being that belonging. And so for our parents too, as much as putting everything in a suitcase and tucking it away was a, a healing process of blocking out that trauma. It was also they had to shut the door on that past on that life on that way. And that was the only way they could then look at what was in front of them to move forward. Now, what I see today is very different. There is more of an acceptance and a strength of this is the community we came from. This is the culture we come from. We will celebrate that with our children, with everything. And we're seeing more of a global understanding of that and acceptance somewhat. It's in, it's getting there. When we were there, it was not there. I remember I took chutney sandwiches, you know, coriander green chutney sandwich. Oh my God, it's like yum. And it's somebody made that one comment of, ooh, she's eating grass and that did it i said to daddy yeah, no i don't want chutney sandwiches anymore and why why wouldn't i because it didn't i didn't fit suddenly so i think that is one thing and i think that's one of the pieces why our parents in order to help us fit did what they did and i think the other is out of their own necessity and survival for them emotionally they had to shut the door on that because their memories I think well and I know from talking to all of them their memories are joyous ones of their time in Uganda it was a camaraderie they had built a home they lived in these little pockets of communities we see that but within that they were next door to one another families were back and forth playing you had these clubs where they would gather there was such a sense of community and when they left that they were isolated for a while until they could re-establish some of that and to live that constantly how would you move forward
1: how would you do that yeah i i, I think there's there's a lot to be unpacked here in terms of how Our parents and their generation addressed some of these traumas. And I really appreciated the way you said that was their way of healing, or at Mm -hmm. least temporarily healing the breach that they had experienced. And we do have different vocabularies and grammars today to deal with these traumas, I think increasingly, because we see that we were one of many different communities who have experienced these kinds of displacements, forced. political acts in which you're having to move your country overnight. And when we experienced this in the early 70s, it wasn't something that was more wide scale. And I think that now we see lots and lots of communities who are experiencing this kind of displacement. Uh, and And I think that in that sense, I'm beginning to see my own story as a more of a universal story as opposed to something that was specific to that moment. And I wanted to kind of ask you that. It, it, do you think that there's a, apart from the specific specificities of the Ugandan Asian moment, is there something universal? You've talked about friendship. I talked a little bit about innocence. Um, what are the kind of universal kind of takeaways that people could kind of gain from from this story or from this experience?
2: I think universally it is understanding and acceptance, number one. And it's also looking at that idea of privilege and privilege beyond monetary gains. We, I force the kids to look at privilege also in the color of our skin. What does that afford us? And it's an uncomfortable conversation, but it's a reality. It was at that time. And by doing that, then we talk about colonialism, what that leads into, how it affected you know, the Indian community, then how that, again, affected the African community. So acceptance, understanding, and privilege. Privilege is a big one, and what that affords you, and the layers of that as it relates to society and countries
1: yeah i think that's those are really important questions they are certainly universal and they are increasingly mm-hmm. more out in the public domain than we didn't have those those concepts no. and ideas when we were growing up there was no way to kind of address them in the public space um and yet we still see people mm-hmm. who come to canada to the us to the uk to other parts of the world who have to undergo the same processes of challenging resettlement. Um, and I was thinking about your new novel that you're writing and thinking you're going to be talking about one. an Asian family who was from Uganda and was sent to a resettlement camp in England. I'm really excited to read your novel when it comes out. My grandparents faced this, you know, experience. Um, they, they were rendered stateless and they ended up in birmingham in a, in a in a resettlement camp for a time um tell me a little bit about the book if you can or what you yeah. what are sort of your sketches of thoughts about yeah. what you want to think about or what you're planning to write about
2: so it was very interesting in the research of orange for the sunsets after it was finished and published i was sitting with all my stacks of you know little moleskin books where i'd written all my notes and sometimes it's lovely just to sip with a cup of tea and read through them. And when I was reading through them, I had taken notes on Enoch Powell, who was there at the time of yep. politics, and he had written his um, River of Blood speech, with, which was a huge anti-immigration speech. And so then I started thinking, what would it be like this group of British passport holders, as well as maybe not, Coming to this country right on the cusp of this speech. And what would the feeling be? And I knew myself personally, you know, you talk about childhood memories and there's snapshots that have left an impression on you. And there was one where we had recently moved and mom and dad, dad had rung to find um, a flat for us. And they had talked to daddy on the phone, listened. They were like, absolutely not a problem. But when dad went over and I happened to be with him, he went over and they saw the color of his skin. They said, no, you can't live here. Hmm. And that left an impression in my mind even then. And it was like, well, why? Why can't we? And not, you know, a child at that age can't reconcile that because it's not something you can change. So that's what started me. And then I started researching the different resettlement camps. And I thought, what would it be like for somebody who has just left everything to come to this place with the thought that we want you in everything? And there are some that are, because we always see that discrepancy. But the general political atmosphere at that time was very different and how would you navigate that and still hold on to who you are without losing that
1: yeah i i think it's going to be a brilliant uh read i can i i'm i'm starting that the when you were talking the the hairs on the back of my neck started standing up and feeling like um that is you know for many people um the 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 kind of moment of 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 having the realization moment that life has fundamentally changed for me now. There's no going back or there's no recapturing a past. Um, Tina, in our conversation today, I I wanted you to have the opportunity also to read a short passage from um, the book. Um, And um, yeah, so here is a passage from Orange for the Sunsets um, read by the author, Tina Athaid.
2: Thank you so much. So I've selected when I was asked to look at the book and pick a selection, you know, right now it's the 50th anniversary of the expulsion of Asian Indians. And I thought it would be interesting to pick somewhere in the book. It's near the beginning of the book and it's right at the point where Idi Amin has made that first initial announcement that he wants Asian Indians to live. So you're going to see Asha, who's the main character and she's in, on India Street, main the main center of town with her two friends, Leela and Neela, the twins, also South Asians. And she's just spotted Yusefu and it surprises her to see him. And you have to understand they are friends, but she also knows his older brother Isai because they have that relationship as well. And he has always been like an older brother to her. So you've got those layers and those complicated relationships already established. All right, here we go. Asha tightened her grip on Leela's hand. The crowd spread across India Street, making it almost impossible to cross. People huddled together in groups, waving the Ugandan flag, or danced with their arms linked together. The three of them had hardly moved at all, being pushed and pulled back and forth. The heat of the sun and the people made it hard to breathe. Or maybe it was the fear of being trapped and unable to get out. Why hadn't she listened to Mr. Barton stayed inside Cafe Nile? It was too late now. Mahindi, Indian, the word thundered all around. Asha's chest tightened as she looked for spaces to push through past the jutting elbows and dancing bodies. She looked up at the dark faces shining with excitement and felt none of their joy. Dada Amin, the crowd cheered for the president, their chanting growing louder and louder. A thick mass of bodies moved in. Asha squeezed Leela's hand and she squeezed back. Wahindi, Wa Nayumbani. Indians go home. That's what she was trying to do. Suddenly a wave of people pitched forward, tugging to pull them apart. Asha felt Leela's fingers tighten. A heavy moss slammed against her. She hit the ground. Leela's hand was gone. Asha had to get up before she got trampled. She rolled onto her knees and stood. Where were Leela and Neela? She spun around, searching through the unfamiliar faces coming upon her. She felt a hand wrap around her wrist. Dark fingers. Not Leela or Neela. Asha yanked to get free, but the fingers tightened. She felt herself being pulled with a grip that was almost painful. Her heart hammered against her chest and her breath came out in gasps. The person holding on to her moved quickly. And finally, they escaped the crowds and stopped. Asha looked up. (gasps) Isai, he found her. Just like that time she got separated from him and Yusefu after Independence Day fireworks at Lake Victoria. And she threw her arms around his neck. I'm so glad it's you. What are you doing here? Asha jumped back, shocked by the anger in his voice. Isai had that same look on his face as Mr. Blatt, a crisscross of worry. Wahindi, Wende, Nuyumbani, the crowd shouting, thundered around them. Why are they shouting Indians go home? I'm getting you out of here, said Isai. Asha stepped back as Isai reached for her. She wasn't going anywhere. Not until you tell me what's going on. Later, we just have to go right now. A police car appeared and sirens blaring. A fear swept across Isai's face. He lunged toward her, but Asha stepped out of his reach. You almost got trampled, snapped Isai. He pointed. What would have happened if Yusefu hadn't seen you? Yusefu was here? Asha looked to where Isai pointed. Yosefú and Akilo stood on top of Sari House, bouncing from foot on foot, cheering, waving and hollering. And a different kind of fear gripped Asha. The kind that left her wondering what her best friend was doing on top of the Sari House with a huge smile on his face while everyone around him shouted for Indians to leave. She looked down at the friendship bracelet on her wrist. There had to be a good reason Yosefú was here. She made a move towards him when Isai grabbed her hand and pulled her in the opposite direction. Wahindi, Wahindi, Nayumbani. Indians, get out, go home. Isai kept a quick, steady pace. He dragged her away from the Indian street onto an alley, finally letting go when he reached his scooter. Get on. Asha climbed, settling beside Isai. She wrapped her arms around him, holding on tightly as he started weaving through the crowds. When they got closer to Asha's house, Isai finally slowed, coming to a stop at the top of her street. You can get home from here, he told her. Asha climbed off. Isai was the older brother she and her sister never had, but something felt different today. Why won't you tell me what's going on? Isai rubbed the back of his neck. Finally, he looked at her. Asha, things are going to be changing. He paused like he wasn't sure if he could continue. The president made an announcement. What? He wants Indians to leave. He wants them out of Uganda. You're lying. Isai shook his head. You need to go home, Asha. Talk to your parents. Asha didn't wait this time. She took off running, willing her legs to move faster. Uganda was her home. The president couldn't make her leave. Her heart thumped in step with her feet. As she skidded through the open gate, she saw Papa's car. Asha leaped up the veranda and ran inside the house. Papa, she cried out. Both Mama and Papa came running out of the sitting room. Papa opened his arms and Rasha ran into them. He pulled her close, holding her like he used to when she'd fall and scrape her knee. Is it true? She asked, stopping to catch her breath. Is the president, is he kicking us out? Yes. Papa's words were barely a whisper, but they felt like a burst of thunder crashing on top of her
1: head. Thank you for joining me today, Tina, and for sharing your
0: story.
2: Thank you for having me. It was an absolute pleasure.
0: That was Zolkafar Hirji in conversation with Tina Athaid about her novel, Orange for the Sunsets. The author and host are both participating in Carleton University's Beyond Resettlement Conference, which includes a public event on November 14th. Visit writersfestival.org for all the details. Thanks to all our patrons, volunteers, and donors. And thanks to the Government of Canada, the Government of Ontario, the City of Ottawa, the Ontario Arts Council, the Canada Council for the Arts, Ottawa Public Library, Carleton University, and CBC for their ongoing support. This podcast is produced by Aaron Flynn, original music and sound engineering by Mike Dubey. Kira Harris is our program director, and I'm Sean Wilson. Thank you for listening.